If you have your Bible, grab it. We're going to be going through Psalm 100. It's an interesting passage for us this week. And the reason why I say interesting is because uh, the last two weeks, if you remember, we've kind of learned from David what it's like to go through a drought in our lives. When we get to the end of a really hard season and the Lord kind of takes us out of our darkness and he produces a measure of joy in our life and he uses the drought He uses the hard time in our lives to actually remind us that he's been working the whole time and he's been drawing us to a place that we can actually look to him for our joy. He's been waiting for that moment that he can end our weeping so that we can look to him for our joy so that we can, our mourning can be turned from mourning into dancing in that we can even be reminded that in those moments and in those times where we've seen God work, we get to the end of it and then we become overconfident. When we become really um, aware of our, of our own abilities, whatever those are. And um, we also see how God takes that and he, in a sense, pulls himself away and he removes his presence, so to speak, in some ways, where we actually have to come back to him in more deeper and more profound ways and say, Lord, um, this is all about you working in my life because I don't have the abilities that I thought I did. And actually... The stability that I create for myself is shaky, and it's not worth very much. And so we've seen David kind of take us through a couple of those places as we looked at Psalm 30. And then this week, we, we get into Psalm 100, which is all about thanksgiving. I wanted us to think and talk through thanksgiving, um, and it seems like a really strange week for that to come about. And so it was a wrestle for me as I dove into this passage to think about what the Lord would have us learn about being thanksgive, thankful in a time and in a place that we're seeing on the heels of the tragedies that we're experiencing. So my hope is just to communicate God's heart in this, um, because God's heart is what changes our hearts. It's what instructs our hearts. It gives our hearts hope, because here's, here's what this is not, okay? Here's what this is not. This is not a religious perspective, When we open God's word on Sundays, we're not getting a religious perspective. We're getting a redemptive story about God changing everything and continuing to do that work. It's not, it's not a blog. The Bible is not a blog post, right? We're so inundated with those things now. The Bible's not a blog. It's where we find the redemptive story of the gospel. It's where we understand that God made everything. It's where we understand that man sinned, gave up those things. It's where we understand that Jesus came and was sent by God to die. It's where we understand that God raised Jesus from the dead so that we could understand the depths of our sin and the fullness of his love, grace, and mercy and have the hope that someday the way Christ has been risen, we are going to be raised. So when we look at all these events, we see that as a hope. We see that as a hope. I have a hard time smiling when I say that because I'm grieving right now. But that is a hope. And it's a hope that we can say with a really strange and stern and serious look on our face. Right? That's our hope. Because the result of that brokenness and what we're seeing and what's going to happen to some of you and what's going to happen to some of you regardless of what's happened this last week is that sin creates a level of cynicism and fear in all of us. That's the result of sin. It creates a cynicism, a distrust. When we say cynicism, we mean a distrust of others' motives. And when we talk about fear, it's kind of the same thing. It's a belief that someone is not good. 
That someone does not have their best interests in, in mind for us. And so what happens is when we take that into our relationship with God, cynicism and fear make us question God's motives, right? And so when we're faced with these types of things that are happening, what it does is it causes Christians, it causes the church to kind of pull back, get immersed or sucked back into the culture and start questioning God's motives. You know, and we, we see this birthed in Adam and Eve. If we go back to Adam and Eve, they said, this was Adam and Eve, they said, let's not follow exactly what God has told us, right? Adam and Eve, what they basically said was, let's question God's motives, for us, because this can't be all there is. There has to be something else. Let's look around paradise that God has placed us. Again, a place where everything was so good that clothing was, was, was optional, right? That's how good paradise was. And let's imagine that there's something that God's not telling us and that there's something God's withholding from us. That was Adam and Eve. And you know what the, the end result of that was? We all die now. That was the end result. The serpent deceived Adam by introducing the possibility that God could not be trusted. All right? And man, we just all have so many things to turn to that seem more attractive than trusting God. Right? Especially right now, man. Social media, we have blogs, we have political parties, we have news networks, we have candidates. So much easier to start getting stirred up about those things than backing back into Scripture, backing back into what God says. And the problem with that is that when those become the prevailing opinions that rule our life, it leads us down a path of cynicism and fear because we fail to trust God instead. So the big idea with us this morning, which is not so big, is that we guard against those things. We guard against cynicism and fear by living a life of thankfulness to God. That's how we guard against cynicism and fear. God actually instructs us in the way that we can guard against those tendencies in us to distrust him. And he does it through this thing called thankfulness. And he causes us to not just be thankful for any frivolous thing, but ultimately to be thankful to him for his goodness, for his love, and for his faithfulness. And that's what we see in Psalm 100. As I pick up in verse 1, it says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So how do we guard against those feelings of fear, those feelings of distrust? Well, he tells us right there. He actually gives us three things. He says, express your thanks. He says, do it through singing. Do it through serving. Do it through pursuing. And we were just singing a minute ago, weren't we? And singing to God is one of the ways, one of the most obvious ways that we actually express our thanks to him in all seasons. It's one of the ways that we do that. Isaiah 51.11 says, And the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. 
Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So God instructs us to sing as a way to express our thankfulness for who we can depend on him to be. We don't allow fear to silence our praise. We don't allow cynicism to dull the expression that God has called our hearts to exude. If I can use an old school word on you like that. Psalm 66.3 says, Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Like sometimes, we, like when you say praise, Ronnie, what does that mean? Does that mean I got to put on like a Tomlin CD in my kitchen while I'm making burritos and like just sing and just sing and just sing? Well, I, you can do that. I mean, I would say do that, you know, if that's one of the ways that you can express yourself to the Lord through singing. But do you see what it says there in Psalm 66? It says, say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Now, the songs that we just sang, and they were picked very specifically for this particular purpose. So that we are saying to God, how awesome are your deeds. So we are saying, behold our God. So we are saying, Lord, we are coming to behold you and to tell you the greatness that is you. And in doing that, God is doing something to our hearts. That expression of singing praises to him. Have you guys ever gone to a party that's dragged on a little bit too long? You know, a birthday party, maybe a first birthday party. You know, the ones the kids are never going to remember and it's really for the adults and maybe it's for the, the parents of the kids who need more presents and they didn't get enough toys, you know, during the baby shower. You know, I don't know. I don't know what's all included in those things. Um, but have you ever gone to one of those parties that's just dragged on too long? There's like scraps of food left everywhere. Everyone's tired. Everyone's consumed a little bit too much. There's sort of a weariness that sets in, you know, because you can only celebrate something for so long. You know, like we only have the capacity to celebrate someone's birthday so long. And then it's like, you know, we need to move on or we're, we're, we're going to just hit your next birthday at some point, you know. Um, it's an ever-passing moment. The psalmist is not trying to describe or try to give us an ever-passing moment for us here. What the psalmist is doing is saying, when our hearts are fixed on the glory, the majesty, the beauty, the kindness, the grace, and the mercy of God through our singing, through the expression of our singing as we give thanks, there's an untapped well there that we can dive deeper and deeper and deeper into. And what that does for us is as we're singing and as we're being thankful, we don't really simultaneously also have fear and cynicism pouring out of that well with that gratefulness. So we sing to God to express thanks to God too. It says there in verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing. We serve God. We serve God with gladness and serving God is how we become part of God's work. How we become part of God's work. How we're part of what God is doing. You know, man, we just contrast that. It's so easy to, and hard and difficult and miserable and painful to contrast that with the things that we give our lives to, isn't it? What's important? You think some people are asking that question right now? What's important? What's the thing that I keep giving my life to? What's the thing that I keep writing my checks to? What's the things I keep swiping my card to? 
mean, do you think those questions, do you think that there are people right now that are really grappling with those questions? Yes, there are. What am I serving? Who am I serving? What am I doing that's lasting for time and eternity? What am I doing that's counting for something beyond pleasure for today? So we look at things like what's happening right now, and it calls those things into question. And right, it should. We want, to be, we want those things to be called into question in our lives because we are frivolous. We are frivolous. And yet the command here, and that's right, I said the big C word, the command here is to serve the Lord with gladness. To serve the Lord. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So serving Him is how we do it with thanks, and it's what He does in our hearts so that we are a part of the work that He's doing. And there's a quadrillion different ways for us as God's church and God's people to serve him, to serve him as a way to guard against fear and cynicism and to become and to be becoming the thankful people that he's called us to be. So we sing to God to express thanks to God and we serve God to become part of God's work. And then three, it says there in verse three, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So number three is that we pursue God. We pursue knowledge. And pursuing knowledge is how the work of God grows in us. So pursuing God is how the work of God actually grows in us. I mean, we just contrast that. Contrast that to some of the things that you pursue. Some of the knowledges, if that's a word, that you pursue. Right? How do we combat the blogosphere right now? Right? I mean, how do, how do you know, you know, I was just talking to, I was just talking to Kyle, uh, you know, a minute ago, and he's like, dude, it's hard to stop reading all the comments. It's hard to stop reading the comments. It's like, yeah, I, I get it, and we're going to read the comments. But what, what do we do to, what do we do to combat the comments as the church? What do we do with that? Well, we pursue the words of God, not the words of angry bloggers. I mean, there's an idea. What does God have to say to these things for us? Because we are just going to get swept away with prevailing opinions on each side politically that are going to try to inform us not just how to think, but how to act. But we have something that has a little more authority than Facebook and Twitter, don't we? And that's what we need to fall back into. That's what we need to spend our time pursuing. I mean, look what it says. It says, he made us. In verse 3, it said, we are his. It says, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now, you remember when we went through Psalm 23, uh, you know, there's, there's something comforting about that for us. There's something really, really secure and comforting about that for us. You know, God becomes the greatest object of our worship when we explore and deepen our understanding of who He is. The problem is that we don't explore who God is. We try to, like, think about 
things related to God. God wants us to open this book and get to know who He is. God created us, it says. He takes ownership of us. He makes us His people. And we enjoy the love and the care that comes from being the people kept securely in His pasture. I need that. I need that. You need that. John 10 says, this is Jesus talking. He said, I am the good shepherd. He said, I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. We went through that passage when we hit Psalm 23. And what that does is it gives us a picture of the heart of Christ. It gives the picture of the heart of Christ that can become our heart And push away that natural fear and distrust and cynicism that's right there ready to boil over in our hearts. We want to pursue the knowledge of God. We want to pursue the word. We want to be a word-centered people. I want you to be a word-centered individual. You know what I want you to say to me? I want you to say, Ronnie, you know what happened Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? I woke up at 6 a.m. and I opened my word and it killed me. And I was supposed to do it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I only did it Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And I've been tired all week and I'm dying and I wake up and all I want to do is drink coffee and have a stack of flapjacks. But I'm like, I'm reading the word and I I don't don't even know if I'm retaining any of it. And I, I don't even know what I'm reading and I'm confused. Yes, that's what I want you to do. I want you to battle in your pursuit of the knowledge of God, knowing that he's working the words of life in you to live out of you. And in that, man, he's going to do something. He's going to do something in those miserably early mornings of your life like he does with the miserably early mornings in my life. I mean, mean, I'm getting paid to do this. 5 a.m. isn't any later for me than it is for you. All right? God works through his word. He works through his word because we grow dull to his word. We grow dull to the things of God. And when we have the amount of things that are coming at us from all sides, it's even harder for us to stay sharp in the things of his words. It's not going to happen magically. It's not going to happen magically. You know, when uh, Em and I, when Melissa and I walk through the trails, we we walk through Fairfield, you know, and they they have that path now that winds through the, the, we call it the forest. It's not the forest. Yeah. We walk through the forest. To you guys, it's woods. I don't know. Um. But you know what's weird? So we, we've been here, you know, six, six and a half years now. Um, one of us usually says as we're walking the trail, can you believe where we live? Like, that's a good thing. That's not, oh my gosh, can you believe where we live? This is ridiculous. But one of us typically says, can you, and it's usually my wife, and she says, can you believe where we live? She says, can you, she's looking around, she says, can you believe how beautiful this is? I mean, It's not that the beauty isn't there before we say that, right? It's that we're not fixated on it. We're not fixated on it. It's become common to us. And in a similar way, God becomes common to us when we don't fix our eyes on him and we stop 
meditating on his character, his glory, his provision, his love, and his, his grace and his mercy. So that's why we want to sing. We want to serve. We want to pursue as is instructed here. So he kind of tells us how. He kind of says, this is how you give thanks. And as we're giving that kind of thanks and that type of obedient thanks to God, some of those fears, some of those cynicisms, we're going to find those things becoming less and less and lesser in our lives. And then, of course, at the end here, he tells us why. He tells us why do we express thanks? Because if we just send you off with that, with a list, we just turn into a, we turn into a legalistic organization here that just says, if you do those things... Just fixate on those things, and that's going to be where you find your level of gratefulness, thankfulness, and you're going to find all this space in your heart where you can see God's goodness and you can see his love and all these things. That's not true at all, actually. If he doesn't get to verse 5 here, then it just becomes a grocery list for us. He says, for the Lord is good, verse 5. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. So he actually says, here's why you express thanks. Because if you walk out of here with a list, instead of a view of God, instead of a view of Christ, then you just have a miserable list. And we're not about lists here. We're about God doing a work that only God can do in our lives that allows us to have a greater, more dazzling view of God, right? So this is what he says. He gives us three things. He says there's goodness, there's love, and there's faithfulness. There's God's goodness, there's God's love, there's God's faithfulness. That's why we're able to do the things that the psalmist just lays out. It's why we're able to give thanks in those ways, by singing, by serving, by pursuing. And what we know about God's goodness is that it's supernatural, okay? So this isn't just God is good, like the way we think of good. When we talk about God's goodness, we're talking about a supernatural goodness. It's not, it's not your grandmother's goodness. Sorry, grandma. It's not your garden variety, earthly goodness. Psalm 25, 8 says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. And by the way, we mean in in the things that are right and the things that are true. So God is the one that teaches us what goodness is by saying, it's me. Look to me. I'm goodness. He tells us it by being himself. So follow me here. All right. If God is the only true and pure definition of good, then we know what good is by knowing who God is. And if we learn what good is by knowing who God is, Man, we can jump for joy because our faultier and cheaper definitions of goodness don't have to disappoint us anymore. We know goodness by knowing God. Remember the rich young ruler in Luke 18, uh, he comes up to Jesus to ask him a question. He says, good teacher. He, He kind of addresses Jesus. He says, hey, what's up? Good teacher. And Jesus calls him out on that. And he says, why do you call me good, brother? He calls him on his definition of good. He says, there's no one good but God alone. We also learn in Romans 3, at the same time, that there is none who do good. All right? So we have Jesus saying, hey, redefine what you mean by good because there's only one good and it's God and it's me. And then in Romans, we see a contrast that says, well, what about people? Can people be good? Is there some inherent goodness in us? It says, no, there's none who do, who do good. That's it. 
great, let me just give up on the human race, Ronnie. Is that what you're saying? It's, we're done here. No, actually, you will eventually give up on the human race if that's where you go to find your goodness. We learned that the last week, haven't we? But God's goodness means every intention towards his children is supernatural. It's supernaturally perfect. It's without defect. It's not random acts of kindness. That's not what we're talking about. It's intentional, purposeful, merciful, and gracious, which means you can, you can unashamedly worship and give thanks to God with, with no strings, with no reservations. If God is good, it means he uses even bad things to accomplish his good purposes. Because God has purposes, and if God is good, it means his purposes are good. So there's not nothing in relation to God that we can't label as good. And not only good, but a supernatural goodness. Because the Lord is good, all things work together for good. Romans 8, 28, because evil does not have the final verdict for those who love God. And you know what that means? It means that's what we have to offer. A world that is clawing and grasping for answers. We have God's supernatural goodness to say, hey, look and see this. Look and see what Jesus offers for this. We're not trying to give you every answer for every question that comes into your mind for all the nuances and all the dynamics that are related around this. But we have God with a supernatural goodness to tell you all about. Number two, his steadfast love endures forever there in verse five. So God has a supernatural goodness. He has a genre defining love. It's genre defining, right? The love of God is, it's a genre defining love. It's the standard. Our definition of love is measured by this love as seen through the death and resurrection of Christ. It's a sacrificial love, right? It's not a garden variety love. It gives everything up for the other person. It's steadfast. It endures forever. We only know this love from God because all other loves disappoint, man. I mean, I feel the love from you guys sometimes. I'm not going to lie to you about that, but it's going to disappoint. Just like the love going out there is going to disappoint, right? It's going to disappoint. Your parents are going to disappoint you. Their love will disappoint you. They will let you down. Your friends will let you down. Your kids will let you down. The church will let you down. There's already some of you guys that are angry about stuff we got going on here. Church is already letting you down. Because it's not a genre-defining love. God's love defines love. And that's because God's love is unchangeable. It exists today. It exists tomorrow. And will be even more fully known upon death. It just keeps getting better. It just keeps getting sweeter. It just gets becoming more in view for us. The love of God is the one lasting thing that all of you have in your lives right now. And it is a love that we have to offer in place of fear and citizen. Let's go to Romans. I'm going to read a little Romans as we finish up. Because these passages in Romans 8, they best describe God's goodness, love, and faithfulness. His supernatural goodness his genre-defining love, and his fail-proof faithfulness. Romans 8. Let's read about this. 
These are verses we read a lot, and we're just going to keep reading them a lot for the, forever. Romans 8.31, talking about God's love. Who then shall we say, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What shall bring any char- who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 35 says this, who shall separate? We just sang this. This is what that song was written from. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake... We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Then he says this in 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present, things to come, nor powers, height, depth, or anything else in all creation will be able. Will be able. They've lost their ability. The engine that drives those things has been dismantled. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have this love to offer our brothers and sisters. And by brothers and sisters, I mean us. And then have that shoot out to the world. And then thirdly, we express thanks because of his fail-proof faithfulness. Because God is not good in loving if he doesn't remain good and loving. If he doesn't keep his promises, if he grows cold, if he grows cynical, if he grows distrusting, then what we have is a fickle, untrustworthy God who we really can't be that thankful for. But God can be counted on to be God. It says here, for all generations that worship him, God's faithfulness, you know what that means for us? It means that he can never be less than everything he always has been and will be. It's phenomenal. But what happens is, is we make God into our own image. And when we raise things up and we make things into our own image, we make gods into our own image, what we've created is an unfaithful God. A God that measures up to our standards. Okay, hear what I mean by this. A God that measures up to our standards is an idol. That's a God that measures up to our, our high standards, right? And an idol will never remain what we've built it up to be. And you know what idols do? They create cynicism and fear because they aren't fail-proof. That's what happens. But God's faithfulness is fail-proof, and we have that to offer. We have that character quality of who God is to offer to a world that needs to know what faithfulness is. And so, thanking God, it's really, it's distinct to the Christian life. It's a very distinct thing to the Christian life. Again, the command isn't give thanks to God when injustice is gone. Does it say that there? It's not give thanks to God when everything has settled and leveled out because it won't, this side of heaven. The command isn't give thanks when you get the president you want because you won't, this side of heaven, when we have a ruler on a throne. 
The command isn't give thanks when you finally have a clear bill of health because you might not this side of heaven. The command isn't give thanks when your child has turned their life around or can sleep through the night because in this life they might not, right? The command isn't give thanks when you finally achieve your career, financial, and retirement goals because you might be broke your entire life this side of heaven. Or you might be rich and then lose it in 2008, this side of heaven. The command is this. Thank God for being God while everything is unfixed and unsettled and unresolved and unrelentingly hard. That is the command. There's no qualifications in that command. It's give thanks to God for His goodness, love, and faithfulness. Let's go to Romans 8.22. We're going to wrap it. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, Hope that is seen is not hope. What is God doing in all of this? I don't know. I don't know. I can't see that. But that's what hope is. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's the hope that we're called to. That's the faithfulness that we can depend on. It's a hope that we can't see based on a God who we have seen working throughout the ages. So many of us wonder what we're called to, don't we? What does God want me to do? I don't know if we really want that answer or if we're just always holding out for the answer that we want when we ask that question. But we know what God wants. God wants our hearts. He wants our thanksgiving. He wants our worship. He wants our lives. And all those other questions that we ask, all the questions that we find ourselves asking today, whether our head's been in the tragedies of the past week or our head is just wondering if I'm going to have a job next week, all those things are real. All those things are real. But all those questions are usually answered when our heart's greatest pursuit becomes God. Because those other questions are given context for us. And honestly, they cease being so important. Because what happens in this life is less important when contemplating the glory of our future life with Jesus. So we get context when we thank God. We get context when we thank Him for the things that are resolutely His. His goodness, love, and faithfulness. Thanking God, it's a call for us. It's a call for you if you follow Christ. It's a call for all seasons. It's our greatest option. In all times, worship is always our best offense. It's always our best defense. It's the call for all times. Because here's the thing. Christianity without worship, Christianity without thankfulness, Christianity without pursuing God, serving God, singing to God, you know what it is? It's religion. It's religion is what it is. Is that what you have? Is that what I have? 
religion. If you're not raising your voice to God, you're raising your voice to God's small case. There's no neutrality here. So how does this help? How does this help what's happening in America right now? How does this help all the polarizing and political opinions? How? The anger, the outrage, the misunderstanding, the grief, the mourning, the never-ending night that loved ones of all of these victims are experiencing. How does this help? How on earth does this help? How does this help us in Ashland, Ohio? This is how it helps. It's the same answer. And I'm going to say the same answer every week. If you guys ever want to know what the preaching is going to be like here in two years, if this is your first time, this is it. Hopefully it'll get a little better. But this is what we return to. This is what we talk about when we say substance is a Christ gospel-centered church. We just return to the only thing that we really know, which is what the Bible instructs us to be, which is Christ the cross equals freedom for us. I'm the least eloquent speaker you will ever meet. I don't have anything. It's cross. It's Christ. It helps because Jesus. It helps because Jesus was the outpouring of God's supernatural goodness. It helps because Jesus was the outpouring of God's genre-defining love. It helps because Jesus was the outpouring of God's fail-proof faithfulness. Because there is a Father who sent His Son, we have access now to pour our hearts in prayer out to a God we can trust. We'll see His glory descend on the lives of our brothers and sisters who suffer. That's why this helps. That's why this helps push against our cynicism and our fear. So here's my encouragement to you and to me. Don't go back. Don't go back. Don't go back to what you've been immersed in over the past week. Let this be your starting point. Don't go back to social media. I'm not saying stay away from social media. Don't go back to social media. Don't let your heart snap back to social media, to politics, to news networks, to politicians for how you are supposed to respond. Don't do it. Don't do it, church. Don't do it. This is not a religious perspective. This is the redemptive answer for our lives. This is the one that pushes against our cynicism and fear, and it's a person, and it's Christ. What is God trying to do with this? What is God trying to do with the church right now? That's why I want to gather up as many people as we can tomorrow morning to pray, because it's an interesting time, because it's a time for us to ask that question. God, what are you trying to do right now? What are you trying to stir in our hearts? What are you trying to break down in our hearts? What kind of prejudices? That we didn't think were there. That are there. Are you trying to destroy in our lives? Well, let's find out by praying. And letting God do that redemptive work in our hearts that comes through prayer. Let's ask the question. 
Is he using this to wake us up? He's using everything to wake us up. But in times like this, when dramatic things happen, the radar goes off. And he uses that. He uses that to wake us up to his goodness, his love, and his faithfulness so that we remember that we have the answer. Think biblically. Not politically. Think biblically. Pray biblically. Act biblically. Love biblically. That's my encouragement. That's all I got. I'm going to pray and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Lord, we need you to work. We need you to act. We need you because we are 100% plus dependent on everything that you have for us to even wake up in the morning and open our eyes and breathe our next breath and put one foot on the ground and literally walk out of our bedrooms to the life that you've called us to. It is all completely and utterly and totally dependent on you. And we give you glory this morning because we see We see your goodness. We see your love. We see your faithfulness. We also see our level of cynicism and fear and how it is just literally right there at the surface of our hearts waiting to boil over. And you've given us this instruction to be thankful people, to thank you, to sing to you, to serve you, to pursue you. Lord, help us do that and let us fight through that. Let us understand who our enemy really is in the spiritual warfare that we are engaged in at all times, Lord. Give us just a great heart, a great vision, big eyes, big heart for Christ and the cross, the answer to everything. Thank you that it's that clear and that right now in this moment we can say it's right there. It is that simple. Lord, change us. We pray, and all God's people said, amen. I'm going to invite...